Let me tell you a story, podcast number 71. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. It was the age of Never mind it is a truth how long You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine or a lace of your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Along with our usual Treasure Island and Winds of Wyoming readings, today we'll also treat you to contributions by two Nevada authors, Christina Foster and Serenity Orr. I'll begin with a fun short story by Christina. She's titled this, The Hot Pink Duffel. My instructions were to meet a man in the city park near the Daisy Garden at exactly five minutes before noon. The arrangement sounded weird to me, but I'd picked up the wrong duffel bag at the airport last Tuesday when I returned from my two-week visit to Greece. What a wonderful place Greece is. White sands, turquoise water, the food, the people, the museums. But I digress. I'm telling you about my hot pink duffel. Who would have thought there would be more than one hot pink duffel on the baggage carousel? I just grabbed it and headed home, not noticing that I had the wrong bag, until I saw the little brass padlock holding the zipper ends together when I tossed it on my bed. I fingered the lock tugged at it gently to see if it would open. It didn't. My fingernail file was too wide to fit in the tiny slot, so I tried a bobby pin. Too thick. How about a number 10 crochet hook? Too round. Okay, Goldilocks, I thought. Now what? My conscience spoke up. Is it ethical to open the suitcase of a stranger? Well, I responded, How am I supposed to find out who it belongs to? Call the airport, my conscience answered. I called the airport. No one had reported a missing bag. I left my name and cell phone number. Glancing at the bag once more, I decided to take a shower. I turned on the spray, not too hot and not too cold, but just right. The bag beckoned me from my bedroom. I want to go home. Please, I want to go home. How can I find out who your owner is if I can't open you and see what's inside? I shouted as I scrubbed shampoo into my hair. A bath towel wrapped around my torso and tucked under my armpits. I checked the bag again. I couldn't open it by conventional means, so I squeezed the nylon skin of the bag. It squished as though it was packed with clothing. But then I felt something hard, something ungiving, something round. I jerked my hands back, and my makeshift sarong fell to the carpet. A bomb! Could it be a bomb? Should I call the police? Okay, Miss Melodramatic, I whispered to myself. Calm down. Who would put a bomb in a hot pink duffel? It's too obvious. Too easy to spot. It's probably a... a... a toothbrush holder. I paused. Six inches across? I didn't sleep well last night, waiting for someone, anyone, to call about the hot pink duffel. This morning, the lady from the airport called to convey a message from the owner of the bag. 
He had mine and wanted to meet me in the park. Well, I assured myself, a nice public place will be safe. Now, here I was, wandering through the park and looking for a man with my hot pink duffel. I rounded the curbing that circled the daisy garden. On a bench sat a small but proper-looking man in his fifties or sixties, dressed in a gray pinstripe suit, pale blue shirt, and a red necktie. Sitting straight as a pin, he held my hot pink duffel on his lap with his hands neatly folded on the top. Hello, I said. I bent down and looked into his steel gray eyes. I'm Nan Woods. The airport said you have my duffel bag. You are two minutes late. He jumped to his feet and thrust my duffel toward me. It must be a bomb, I thought as I quickly handed him his bag. He must need it to disarm it before noon. I took my duffel and stepped back. Calm down, my practical side said. It's probably his lunch. He's hungry. The man laid his duffel on the bench and pulled a key ring from his suit pocket. He inspected the keys one by one until he found a tiny brass key. Pinching it between his forefinger and his thumb, he slipped it into the padlock hole and turned. The moment the lock opened, he unzipped the bag, reached inside, and pulled out a gray Tupperware container with a tan lid. Centering himself on the bench, he peeled off the lid and thrust his hand inside the container. I stepped back, concerned for my safety, but too curious to run. When he pulled out his fist, birdseed trickled between his fingers. He held the seeds over the sidewalk, shaking his fist and whistling. Within moments, pigeons filled the air, landing on the sidewalk, on the bench, and on the funny little man's shoulders. He didn't offer an explanation, and I didn't ask. Instead, I turned and walked out of the park. from Winds of Wyoming, and we'll finish chapter 20. Mike crammed his hat onto his head and started for the door. Then he was gone, the door thumping closed behind him. That evening, Kate sat in bed with her back against the headboard, munching a cracker, trying to read. But she couldn't concentrate on the words or force down more than half a ritz. Life was about to blow sky high for her, and possibly for her friends. They had no idea what kind of malevolence she'd brought into their lives. Now Mike was mad at her, but maybe that was a good thing. He'd soon know she was a felon. She heard a knock and looked up. Dimple stood in the doorway. May I come in? Of course. Her host sat on a chair next to the window. Anything I can get you to help you make it through the night? Aspirin? A glass of willows? Kate hoped Dimple didn't see her lips twitch. I took a pain pill earlier, so that should hold me through the night. But water would be nice later on. You've looked so sad all day, other than when Mr. Duncan was here. Dimple winked. Kate clasped her cheeks to hide the color she knew was rising from her neck to her face. You may think so, but nothing can ever happen between us. Why not? She stared at the ceiling. You really want to know? Dimple nodded. Kate toyed with the new bracelet on her wrist. I guess the short version is that he deserves a wholesome person like his mom, like you, not trash like me. 
Dimple's brow lowered. Don't ever think or say that again. No one is garbage in the eyes of our Creator. Each of us has been created in His image. Kate looked down. I thought I could leave my past behind and start a new life in Wyoming. Instead, I brought a big black thundercloud to hail on everyone around me. She bit her lip. Why was she saying this? Kate? She avoided Dimple's gaze. I've said way too much. I don't understand what you're talking about, sweetie, but I don't need to. The Bible says in Psalms that God knows our foolishness. He knows our guilt, and he knows and cares about the anguish of our hearts. He even keeps track of our tears. She clasped her hands around her knee. I've prayed for you since the day we met, and I'll continue to pray that you'll be assured of God's love and forgiveness. Kate smirked, remembering Dipple's promise to keep her in her prunes. As the Apostle Paul prayed, the older woman cleared the crackle from her throat. I'll ask that you begin to comprehend how great God's power is to help those who believe in him. You do believe, don't you? Kate nodded. Yes, but my faith is weak. I asked God to come into my life when I was in uh, Pittsburgh. I know he loves me and will help me be a better person. I just have trouble shedding the shadow of my past. That's good. What's good? The fact you understand your weaknesses. Paul claimed that when he was weak, that's when he was strong. He said he delighted in his weaknesses and boasted about them so God's power would be displayed. Kate raised her eyebrows. Sounds backward to me. Temple laughed. Pastor Chuck calls it upside-down theology. But that's the kind of God we have. We can't put him in a box or stop him from rescuing us. A verse in Deuteronomy says he rides across the heavens to help us. Remember, he delights in you, Kate. Let him ride to your rescue, singing a song of deliverance. Mike stifled a yawn as he opened the front door. Come in, Fletcher. The pre-dawn gust of cool air that slipped through the opening made him shiver. Fletcher stepped into the lobby. Morning, Mike. Sorry to wake you so early. Something wrong? You could say that. Fletcher rubbed his hands across his hairless dome. Mike waited. Maybe this was it. The moment when the other boot dropped and the barely controlled chaos escalated to pandemonium. I hate to be the bearer of bad news. Fletcher crossed his arms as if shielding himself from Mike's reaction. Cyrus left. Yep, boot number two. When I got to the kitchen a few minutes ago, I found a copy of this week's menu next to his cookbook with a note that said he's leaving town. His only instructions were to repeat June menus in July and August. That's all? Laura, wearing a robe and slippers and a sleepy expression, stepped into the lobby. Fletcher, what in the world are you doing here so early? Cyrus quit. You're kidding. Nope. She shook her head. He really did it this time. We should have taken his threats seriously. She turned to Mike. So, what's plan B? He shrugged. I can flip pancakes. Perfect, Fletcher nodded. Pancakes are on the menu this morning, along with fruit slices, bacon, and eggs. 
Laura touched Fletcher's arm. Do you mind stepping in for Cyrus? I'd be glad to, ma'am, but I'll need help. We'll see to it you have plenty of helpers. Mike and I can assist this morning. Who else is scheduled today? Tanner is on for breakfast. I'll have to check the list for the other meals. Kate bumped the wheelchair across the threshold and onto the patio. It took a couple tries, but she managed to maneuver the chair close to the table. Dimple followed. She placed a cup of herbal tea in her computer in front of Kate. Kate thanked her. Are you sure you don't need your laptop? I don't know how to use it yet. When you're finished with it, maybe you can teach me. I'd love to. Thanks for sharing. I'm happy to share with you, but I have to admit I'm not happy about aiding and abetting a runaway. Are you calling me a runaway? Temple folded her arms. You told me you love it here. So? So why leave? Kate lifted her palms. I'm a single woman who needs to finish her internship requirements and find a job to support herself. This valley isn't exactly a mecca of industrialization. If God wants you here, he'll provide employment. If God wanted me here, he wouldn't have... Temple's eyebrows rose. Oh, never mind. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. That's Romans 8.28, sweetie. Stick that in your pipe and smoke it. Kate laughed. Yes, ma'am. Temple lifted a sweater from a nail beside the back door and tied it by the sleeves around her tiny waist. The cemetery must be a mess after that gale we had in the middle of the night. I need to go tidy it up. Anything else I can get you before I go? I'll be fine. Thank you for all you do to make me comfortable. I'll return in an hour or so. Don't you be trying to crawl into a bathtub or reach into a cupboard. Wouldn't think of it. Kate watched Temple limp around the corner of the house. What an amazing woman. She didn't let painful joints slow her down. I shouldn't let a broken leg stop me. By the looks of the newly swept patio, the elderly woman had already tidied up her yard, which appeared untainted by the midnight wind that had lashed the little cottage and awakened Kate. At first, she'd been frightened by the shadows of branches thrashing in the moonlight and the sound of them noisily scraping against the house. But soon, she'd had the sensation that the wind was cleansing her spirit and soothing her soul the way it did her first day in Wyoming, and she'd fallen into a deep, satisfying slumber. Chaplain Sam had once told the women in a prison chapel service that the Holy Spirit and his angels were holy winds, healing helping currents of promise. Last night, she'd been surrounded by holy winds. What a privilege. Thank you for sending your messengers to dance over me last night, Lord. She bowed her head. I trust they were singing songs of deliverance according to your plan, not mine. Kate lifted the computer lid and typed Romans 8.28 into the search field. Time to stick it in her pipe before the sheriff came to haul her away. I believe Search for Zarina is Serenity Orr's first book, and I think it could be classified as ancient world historical fantasy. I'll be reading 
an excerpt from Chapter 1, Search for Zarina. I struggle in the world of half-waking, trying to make sense of the sounds around me. A rustling of coverings, a soft padding of feet, a rubbing together of skins. Then, I remember Father must leave us today. It is the first hunt of the annual. The men will be gone for several days, even with our longer days giving more light. The work of killing the mammoth, cutting the beast into manageable pieces, and then hauling the food back takes much time. I pull the covers down, exposing my face. Cool air tickles my cheeks. Rolling over onto my side, I spy on him. He wraps long, thin cords around his knee-high boots, the boots I made for him during the time of snow. I try to commit his face to memory. Ever since I forgot my mother's face, I have tried to imprint my father's image on my heart and my mind. I never want to lose him. I alternate between watching him and closing my eyes, calling up the image in my mind. His jaw-length dark hair, black as night, is strayed and gathered by a cord at the base of his neck. His eyes, the color of the early dawn, focus on the laces he's tying. His broad face, though stern at times, has known much laughter, the evidence in the wrinkles at the edge of his lips. I continue my ritual until I am satisfied that I will remember. Father stands and stretches his muscled frame to full height. He's about average among the people, although the muscles in his arms are much leaner than most of the men. He was wearing the traditional skin leggings and sleeveless tunic of the people. A cord hangs loose at his throat, his token dangling from it. He wraps a wide belt about his lean waist, securing it with a knot, and then grabs a large square pouch from a small, hollowed log at the back of the tent. The pouch contains meat powder, a mixture of dried berries, fat, and pulverized meat, which provide him with strength during the hunts. All the men carry meat powder. He tucks the cords of the pouch around his belt before grabbing his coat. A mammoth skin jacket made long ago by my mother. Grandmother made him a new one, but he only thanked her and then gave it to Balak. Somehow I can't see him in any other jacket than this one, with his dark stained skin and shiny elbows. The hood hangs in a triangle at his back. It is waterproof and will keep him warm in all weather. Father leans over, smiles at me, and tugs at a strand of my long, loose hair. Sleepy one, soon I leave for the hunt, but I expect you to be busy while I am gone. You are to train with Balak again today. Practice your dart throwing and trapping. Maybe you will even bring another jumper for stew. All right, Father. Good hunt. May the Mighty One bless you with safety and much meat, so that you will return to me and provide for the people. I quote our traditional farewell, one I learned long ago from my mother. I mean every word. Thank you, my child. Before he leaves our tent, he grabs his darts and throwing stick. Then he lifts the flap, eases himself out, and is gone. Although the men do not always use the darts to kill the great mammoth, they carry them because of the blade-toothed cats and the grisly claws. These ferocious beasts will smell the kill and quickly try to claim it for themselves. This contest for the meat often ends in injuries and deaths for both sides, no matter what precautions we take. Once father leaves, I breathe in the cool air. 
Now that the time of snow has passed, we only worry about a nightly fire, and so Grandmother has let it turn to coals. I stretch, sending blood flowing and circulating through my body. Today, I practice, much as I do many days. The only time I do not prepare for my testing is when I am plagued by the time of the women. It is then that I question my father's wisdom the most. Although I do not suffer every moon as most of the women, because I am only plagued two or three times an annual, it is enough to be discouraging. I want to please father, but I am growing into a woman capable of bearing children. But that is what your father wants, grandmother reminds me, whenever I bemoan my plight. He wants a son, and you shall give him one. Then why go through all this training? I can have children without being a man. Yes, but then your son would be your man's, and not your father's. It is our way, and so you must be pronounced your father's heir in order to give him an heir. I crawl out from under my furs to prepare for the day. Pulling on my mammoth skin leggings, I tighten the drawstring around my lean waist, muscles rippling as I breathe. The tunic comes next. It is supple and moves easily over my torso. It is sleeveless like my father's. I stare at my arms. They are long and lean so that I can see the small muscles twist and turn with my movements. I frown, wishing for the graceful and full arms of the other women. But my training has set me apart. I grab my boots and settle on the ground. I tug them on and tuck my leggings into them. Finding my cords, I wrap them securely up to my knees. I slide into my skin jacket. It hangs loose around my lean, hard body. Last, I run a wooden comb through my long, tangled hair and then tightly bind it at the back of my head with a cord. I grab a handful of dried berries and grizzly meat and leave the tent. As I walk to Balak's family tent, I toss berries into my mouth one at a time, trying not to notice the looks the women give me. I do not know what their looks mean, but they make me feel uncomfortable, as though I had eaten bad meat. I am the chief's daughter. Of course they watch me, I tell myself trying to calm my nerves. I run a hand along the cave wall, feeling the damp grittiness as I turn toward Balik's family tent. All the dwellings are arranged in a semicircle around the story fire, which is the center of life here in our cave. My family tent is in the center of the Ark of Tents, near the back of the main room of the cave, and Balik's is off to the strong side. Beyond the main room are smaller rooms used by newly joined couples, and beyond those are mysterious winding caverns. I have never ventured beyond the main room, for I have never had need. Most family tents have two rooms. The main room takes up three-quarters of the space. Here the family gathers around the fire pit to eat and talk. This room is where the children sleep. The parents have a separate room, divided by a skin wall, stretched and hung from a pole at the top of the tent. I arrive at Balik's tent. His father, Boku, has left with the men, but I watch his mother talk to Bella, Balik's sister, before she disappears into the tent. Bella remains outside on a stool. She has a large pot and a stone, and is working the stone up and down, probably preparing meat powder. Her long black hair is braided in two braids, the custom of the unclaimed girls, and they swing with the rhythm of her body as she pounds the powder. Her soft skin glistens from the effort. I wish I could join her. I wish I could wear two braids instead of the long tail of hair that hangs down my back. The men wear their hair jaw length and tied with a cord at the base of their necks. Though I have acquiesced to tying my hair back as the men do, I insist on it being long. My hair trails to my waist. I wish I could stay with Bella, prepare food, 
sing the laughing songs of our people and talk nonsense, instead of pretending to be something I am not. We're back to Treasure Island, chapter 23, and I'll read just a little bit of the end of chapter 22. The ebb had already run some time, and I had to wade through a long belt of swampy sand where I sank several times above the ankle before I came to the edge of the retreating water and wading a little way in, with some strength and dexterity, set my coracle, kneel downward, on the surface. Chapter 23, The Ebb Tide Runs The coracle, as I had ample reason to know before I was done with her, was a very safe boat for a person of my height and weight, both buoyant and clever in a seaway. But she was the most cross-grained, lopsided craft to manage. Do as you please, she always made more leeway than anything else, and turning round and round was the maneuver she was best at. Even Ben Gunn himself has admitted that she was queer to handle till you knew her way. Certainly, I did not know her way. She turned in every direction but the one I was bound to go. The most part of the time, we were broadside on, and I am very sure I never should have made the ship at all but for the tide. By good fortune, paddle as I pleased, the tide was still sweeping me down, and there lay the Hispaniola right in the fairway, hardly to be missed. First she looms before me like a blot of something yet blacker than darkness. Then her spars and hull began to take shape, and the next moment, as it seemed, for the further I went, the brisker grew the current of the ebb. I was alongside of her hawser and had laid hold. The hawser was as taut as a bowstring, and the current so strong she pulled upon her anchor. All round the hull, in the blackness, the rippling current bubbled and chattered like a little mountain stream. One cut with my sea gully, and the Hispaniola would go humming down the tide. So far, so good. But it next occurred to my recollection that a taut hawser, suddenly cut, is a thing as dangerous as a kicking horse. Ten to one, if I were so foolhardy as to cut the Hispaniola from her anchor, I and the coracle would be knocked clean out of the water. This brought me to a full stop, and if fortune had not again particularly favored me, I should have had to abandon my design. But the light airs, which had begun blowing from the southeast and south, had hauled round after nightfall into the southwest. Just while I was meditating, a puff came, caught the Hispaniola, and forced her up into the current. And to my great joy, I felt the hawser slacken in my grasp, and the hand by which I held it dip for a second underwater. With that, I made my mind up, took out my gully, opened it with my teeth, and cut one strand after another till the vessel swung only by two. Then I lay quiet, waiting to sever these last when the strain should be once more lightened by a breath of wind. All this time I had heard the sound of loud voices from the cabin, but to say the truth, my mind had been so entirely taken up with other thoughts that I had scarcely given a ear. Now, however, when I had nothing else to do, I began to pay more heed. One I recognized for the coxswains, Israel Hands, that had been Flint's gunner in former days. The other was, of course, my friend of the red nightcap. Both men were plainly the worse for drink, and they were still drinking, 
for even while I was listening, one of them, with a drunken cry, opened the stern window and threw out something which I divined to be an empty bottle. But they were not only tipsy, it was plain that they were furiously angry. Oaths flew like hailstorms, and every now and then there came forth such an explosion as I thought was sure to end in blows. But each time the quarrel passed off, and the voices grumbled lower for a while, until the next crisis came and, in its turn, passed away without result. On shore I could see the glow of the great campfire burning warmly through the shore-side trees. Someone was singing a dull, old, droning sailor song with a droop and a quaver at the end of every verse, and seemingly no end to it at all but the patience of the singer. I had heard it on the voyage more than once, and remembered these words. But one man of her crew alive, what put to sea with twenty-five. And I thought it was a ditty rather too dolefully appropriate for a company that had met such cruel losses in the morning. But indeed, from what I saw, all these buccaneers were as callous as the sea they sailed on. At last the breeze came. The schooners sidled and drew nearer in the dark. I felt the hawser slacken once more, and with a good, tough effort, cut the last fibers through. The breeze had but little action on the coracle, and I was almost instantly swept against the bows of the Hispaniola. At the same time, the schooner began to turn upon her heel, spinning slowly end for end across the current. I wrought like a fiend, for I expected every moment to be swamped, and since I found I could not push the coracle directly off, I now shoved straight astern. At length I was clear of my dangerous neighbor, and just as I gave the last impulsion, my hands came across a light cord that was trailing overboard across the stern bulwark. Instantly I grasped it. Why I should have done so, I can hardly say. It was at first mere instinct, but once I had it in my hands and found it fast, curiosity began to get the upper hand, and I determined I should have one look through the cabin window. I pulled in hand over hand on the cord, and when I judged myself near enough, rose at infinite risk to about half my height, and thus commanded the roof and slice of the interior of the cabin. By this time the schooner and her little consort were gliding pretty swiftly through the water. Indeed, we had already fetched up level with the campfire. The ship was talking, as sailors say, loudly, treading the innumerable ripples with an incessant weltering splash, and until I got my eye above the window sill, I could not comprehend why the watchman had taken no alarm. One glance, however, was sufficient, and it was only one glance that I durst take from that unsteady skiff. It showed me hands and his companion locked together in deadly wrestle, each with a hand upon the other's throat. I dropped upon the thwart again, none too soon, for I was near overboard. I could see nothing for the moment but these two furious, encrimsoned faces swaying together under the smoky lamp, and I shut my eyes to let them grow once more familiar with the darkness. The endless ballad had come to an end at last, and the whole diminished company about the campfire had broken into the chorus I had heard so often. Fifteen men on the dead man's chest, yo-ho-ho and a bottle of rum. Drink, and the devil had done for the rest. Yo-ho-ho, and a bottle of rum. 
I was just thinking how busy Drink and the devil were at that very moment in the cabin of the Hispaniola, when I was surprised by a sudden lurch of the coracle. At the same moment, she yawed sharply and seemed to change her course. The speed, in the meantime, had strangely increased. I opened my eyes at once. All round me were little ripples, combing over with a sharp, bristling sound and slightly phosphorescent. The Hispaniola herself, a few yards in whose wake I was still being whirled along, seemed to stagger in her course, and I saw her spars toss a little against the blackness of the night. Nay, as I looked longer, I made sure she also was wheeling to the southward. I glanced over my shoulder, and my heart jumped against my ribs. There, right behind me, was the glow of the campfire. The current had turned at right angles, sweeping round along with it the tall schooner and the little dancing coracle, ever quickening, ever bubbling higher, ever muttering louder. It went spinning through the narrows for the open sea. Suddenly the schooner in front of me gave a violent yaw, turning perhaps through twenty degrees, and almost at the same moment one shout followed another from on board. I could hear feet pounding on the companion ladder, and I knew that the two drunkards had at last been interrupted in their quarrel and awakened to a sense of their disaster. I lay down in the bottom of that wretched skiff and devoutly recommended my spirit to its maker. At the end of the straits, I made sure we must fall into some bar of raging breakers where all my troubles would be ended speedily, and though I could perhaps bear to die, I could not bear to look upon my fate as it approached. So I must have lain for hours, continually beaten to and fro upon the billows, now and again wetted with flying sprays, and never ceasing to expect death at the next plunge. Gradually, weariness grew upon me. A numbness, an occasional stupor, fell upon my mind even in the midst of my terrors, until sleep at last supervened, and in my sea-tossed coracle I lay and dreamed of home and the old Admiral Benbow. That's going to finish off this podcast. As always, thanks for joining us. Until next time, happy reading. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckylyles.com. Steve and Becky like to hear your thoughts, and they encourage authors to send stories and other short prose and poetry for them to read on the podcast. You can learn more about Becky's books by visiting beckylyles.com or by searching for her books online. Her nonfiction titles can be found under the name Becky Lyles and her fiction under Rebecca Carrie Lyles. All of her books are available in both print and ebook formats. Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom are also offered in audio format online. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.